Welcome to the Ascension Business Network. You are listening to the Leadership and Transformation Podcast Series. Our program is sponsored by Ascension Transformation Solutions, your business transformation technology partner. Steve Rayner will be your host for today's program. Hello, I'm Stephen Rayner, and with me is Bill Belgard. And our special guest today is Debbie Collard. In 30 years with the Boeing company, Debbie Collard served as an executive in multiple divisions encompassing business excellence, quality improvement, strategy integration, program management, and business operations. Debbie's work resulted in several quality awards, including the prestigious Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award, the highest honor for performance excellence given in the United States. She was instrumental in the transformation of the Boeing Airlift and Tankers Program, which won the award for manufacturing in 1998. She then went on to become the key practitioner, leading to Boeing's aerospace support business, winning the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award for service in 2004. Debbie served on the National Baldridge Foundation Board of Directors for 15 years, holding multiple positions, including becoming the first woman chair of the board. Today, Debbie is the founder and owner of A Positive Difference, LLC, Debbie Collard Executive Coaching and Leadership Development. Debbie, welcome. Thank you for having me, Steve. It's great to see you. And um, one of the things I wanted to, to start with was kind of some background around what the airlift and tanker program was facing in the early uh, 1990s. That is such an extraordinary transformational story. I'd like to get some background about some of the issues and problems that were facing the program way back then. Okay, great. Well, in the early 90s, around 1992, airlift tanker programs and C-17 program was 99% of the revenues of what was airlift and tanker programs. But that whole organization was in a really bad situation. It was a fixed price development program. And first flight had been in 1991. And we were already six months behind schedule in 1992 and over 1.2 billion overrun of our own money, not to say anything about the government's money, which was probably about the same place. We had adversarial relationships with customers, suppliers, our own employees. We had technical deficiencies, poor quality, cost and schedule overruns, you name it. If it was bad, we had it. So in short, it was a complete mess. In 1992, because of all that, we were told by the U.S. government, look, 40 and no more unless you perform. And what that meant was the 40 already contracted aircraft out of the planned 120 aircraft buy would be at 40 and no more. And if that happened, 10,000 people would be out of work. And so, of course, being in that situation, oversight by the government became even more intense at that for us. I had joined the company, which was then McDonnell Douglas Corporation, in 1985. And the fledgling C-17 program was my first job with the company. And by 1991, I was working in product support. And upper management had asked me to become part of a team that was assessing the program C-17 program across the board for how we could improve and fix the situation that we were in. To do that assessment, we used the Malcolm Baldrige National Quality Award criteria to self-assess. John McDonnell, who was son of the founder of the McDonnell Douglas Corporation, mandated that the entire company would use the Baldrige criteria as an internal assessment tool for our businesses. I was just returning from maternity leave after having twin daughters and didn't have an assignment. So they said, give it to Debbie. She can do it. 
So I got assigned to learn about the criteria and become one of the examiners of the business units. I was also responsible for two specific areas in the C-17 program, processes and results. So how's that for coming back from a leave? <laughs> Eventually, I was asked to head up the entire effort for airlift and tanker programs, which we entitled Business Excellence. Wow. I mean, at that point in time, you were bleeding money. Yeah. 10,000 people were you know, potentially about to lose uh, their jobs. You just had twin daughters. I just had twin daughters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not except to mention that, you just had twin daughters. <laughs> except for that, you didn't have much to do. No. I was, I was really looking for work at that point. <laughs> <laughs> but you had, this, you had this framework. You had some support from senior management to begin to use the Baldridge criteria to examine the business. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of, I mean, as you look back on that, what were some of the key things that enabled the business to be around? What were some of the key leadership roles, some of the key things that you were able to get from the union, you know, in terms of their support? How did this all start to come together? Yeah. Okay. Well, so the C-17 program went from almost being canceled, as we just mentioned, to first winning a California State Quality Award in 1996. So that was uh, a short four years. And then we won the National Baldridge Award in 1998. Six years, basically, complete disaster to winning a National uh, Quality Award and being a role model. Um, we merged with and became part of the Boeing company in 1997. So that was another key event in that, in that time frame. And we were visited from people all over the company, the Boeing company, to benchmark our practices. Um, our business results in that time frame improved across the board. So, for example, our CPAR, which is the Customer Performance Assessment Report with the government, and that's how they assess how well you're doing to what they've contracted with you for. Our ratings in 1993 were 0%. And in 1996, they were 100% CPAR. So we had 100% improvement in three years. We achieved a multi-year contract with the government, which then enabled us to sell more aircraft to other customers. And the C-17 became a world-class program and a cash cow for the Boeing company and ultimately delivered not 40 aircraft, but 279 aircraft. So what do I attribute that turnaround to? Well, I attribute the turnaround and ultimate success of the C-17 program to the use of the Baldridge criteria as a framework for assessing and making improvements. Not to say we weren't doing a lot of great things. We were. We were doing really awesome things, but those things weren't aligned and integrated in a systematic approach that enabled efficiency and effectiveness. So in a lot of the great things we were doing, they were in pockets and people didn't even know we were doing them. Baldrige provided us that framework. Um, and if you ask people who went through the tough times on C-17 program and then persevered through that to the amazing times, what the turnaround was attributable to, you'd probably get a bunch of different answers based on where they were in the organization and what they were exposed to. And that's because we didn't make the Baldridge criteria some separate thing we were doing. Top leadership built it into the fabric of the organization and did everything in alignment with that framework. I mentioned earlier that we had horrible relationships with our customers, our suppliers, our employees. Well, our unions were one of those groups that we had really bad relationships with. And we had 10 different bargaining units that we dealt with in airlift and tanker programs at the time. And 
it was very adversarial relationships, us and the management and union. And as we started using different approaches, employee involvement, and making the teams accountable for their own success, and getting our processes in order, and um, tracking our performance, and having uh, integrated product teams where everybody who was working on the uh, product at the right place at the right time, working together, the engineers with the mechanics. And when we took all those things and then put that within this, this Baldridge framework, if you talk to a mechanic on the floor, they would probably say, oh no, it was employee involvement that was the cause, you know, that was the success of the turnaround was attributable to. Or if you talk to uh, someone in engineering, they would probably say, oh, the stuff we were doing with Six Sigma is what helped us. Well, it was all of those things. All those things together in a systematic approach that enabled us to see where things needed to be improved and go improve them. So the, the framework really provided that sort of integration of all these different separate activities, all heading toward a common you know, direction, common pathway leading to performance improvement. Yeah, and not just the integration, but it allowed us to do assessments as well. So the, the Baldrige criteria just asks a lot of hard questions. It doesn't give you any answers. So you got to kind of figure the answers out on your own. The good news was we were already doing a lot of this stuff. We just weren't doing it in a way that was coordinated. So think of riding a bicycle, right? You can be the best peddler in the world, but if you have no balance, it's not going to work. And you can have the best balance, but if you can't pedal the bike or steer it while you're pedaling, it's still not going to work. So what the Baldridge criteria did was enable us to bring all these things together in a way that worked well together, was integrated, aligned, and headed towards the direction, a common direction we all wanted to head. And the uh, successes you know, led to a very financially well-performing uh, unit. Um, you were mentioning the CPARs went from zero to a hundred percent, yeah, truly, truly extraordinary uh, accomplishment. And and uh, this idea of quality improvement, you know, became as as the uh, integration through the acquisition with Boeing was occurring, became uh, now part of the Boeing uh, philosophy or approach. And uh, you were uh, asked to uh, do something very similar to what you would do program with aerospace support with us, a uh, completely different situation. You're talking about a service organization. What was the situation facing aerospace support when you got involved? In 2000, David Spong, who was the leader of Airlift and Tanker Programs, was asked to go lead the aerospace support organization. Now, this was a three-year-old organization that was formed by taking the aftermarket support aspects from our defense programs and putting them under a David, who's an engineer by training, was asked to lead a relatively new support and logistics organization. And as if that wasn't enough learning, was also challenged with tripling revenues in five years with double digit margins. So the organization was already performing pretty well and they didn't feel that they needed to be transformed. However, David, when he was assigned to go there, knew that they could always be better and that they would need to be better to achieve the results that he'd been challenged with. So because of the success at Airlift and Tanker programs, David felt that using the Baldrige criteria and framework would work at aerospace support as well as it had at Airlift and Tankers. 
to that end, he asked me to move with him to the new organization and be in charge of implementing business excellence there. So the first thing we did was immediately assess the organization to see where they were, what best practices did they have, what challenges did they have, and start applying best practices that we'd learned from airlift and tankers as well. Um, by the way, we not only achieved the results that David was challenged with, but exceeded them. He tripled the revenues in three years instead of five with double digit margins. And on top of that, improved employee and customer satisfaction and received, as you mentioned earlier, the second Baldrige National Quality Award, but this time for a service organization. David is still in the history of the Baldrige program nationally, the only leader to have won in two separate categories, manufacturing and service. So that was an additional accomplishment from applying this at McDonnell Douglas slash Boeing. And as far as we know, you're the only organization practitioner that's ever done that as well. True. That's true, Bill. <laughs> I am. But Debbie, a number of companies now, after after all these years, a number of companies have applied the Baldrige criteria to their work. Can you help us? And some of it, sometimes it really takes off and does great. I think C-17 and the Airlift and Tanker program are among the best. I mean, when C-17 was a really a worst to first story. Mm-hmm. And it became, as, as long as we were tracking it, it became the most profitable pro, profitable program in the Boeing company for 11 years. Yep. And that's and that's saying something in, in those days for all, this, all the programs that they had. So um, I, if you think about the culture that existed in the company uh, when the first CPARS was done and, uh, say, in the beginning of 94, the culture that existed then, uh, the eighth airplane, which was called P-8, had had a birthday in the on the line, which means it had been on the line for more than a year. Yes. If you take the culture that was then, then and what happened to, I mean, and then you because you, you had the Baldrige criteria then too, right? Mm-hmm. So, so what happened with the culture? And one of the things we want to get at in these kind of this kind of forum is what what were the changes in the culture that that allowed all that to 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 work to be successful we have this notion that the culture it for lack of a better explanation is like an operating system and quote in the Baldrige is certainly uh, the the very best as far as i'm concerned uh but then the operating system would be in the culture you have to be able to put the, that's going to pick it up and run with it right so what were the changes in the culture? What, what what became different? Why did it work so well? I would say there was something slightly different about the culture and what made it work in airlift and tankers and aerospace support. So in airlift and tankers, we were by any definition in a huge crisis. Huge. When you're in trouble, you'll reach for any life preserver that comes your way. Right. And they would send tons of different uh, management representative to help us and to fix us. And they would send oversight committees and government oversight committees. And what started to happen was because John McDonald had asked us to do this, these assessments using the Baldrige criteria, things started coming out of those feedback reports and saying, well, you probably need to fix something here and you probably need to change something here. 
And Don Kozlowski, Cause, who was in charge of C-17 program before David, he was David's predecessor, he would listen to those. And so that was the first thing I would say. He would listen as a leader to other people telling him things that couldn't have been, I mean, you, you could have easily said, no, that's not true. That's not what's going on here. You don't understand. But he didn't do that. He listened to folks and he said, okay, what would you do about that? And then he would go implement some of those changes cause stood up for them and said, no, this is what we're going to do. That slowly started to move the culture needle because we were making changes and transforming the talk as a leader. David followed in his footsteps, doing the exact same thing all that were in the trenches that were doing the work every day about how we could improve what we were doing and his job as a leader and causes was to say, okay, how do we fit these changes we're making and these improvements we're making into our overall organizational culture? And how do we make sure they stick? Make sure this isn't a uh, flavor of the day or the latest initiative that we're doing. And so he kept driving us. Another thing that I think really helped at C-17 program oddly, was that we were in a crisis. Government oversight, the government partner was in a crisis as well. So um, CAUSE formed a partnership with our government customer, and he and General Kadish became co-leaders of the organization, General Kadish on the government side and Kozlowski on the private side. What they would do was they would hold reviews of the organization together. And so it was full transparency and you couldn't hide anything that was, that was bad, that was going on and they would find out about it. And they part, they created, which I mentioned a little bit ago that work together and you would ha always have a customer counterpart to what you did, whether it was a team or whether it was an individual that you could contact, but you were both held accountable by these joint leaders for things getting better. So I think that those two things, the fact that we were in a crisis and we had to implement good things and cause was willing to listen to people and that he partnered with the customer that really helped change C-17 program and airlifting tankers. Space support was a little bit different beast because when we arrived there in 2000, they're like, yeah, we don't need to be fixed. <laughs> we heard about the things you guys did on C-17 and that's all good for California people, but not necessarily for St. Louis people. Um, Missouri is the show me state. They wanted to be, they had to be shown that they really needed, did need to change or were able to perform even better if they did make some changes. Um, David had to prove himself there because he was an engineer coming into a logistics organization, and that's always suspect in aerospace. So um, David liked to call what he did a benevolent dictatorship. He was firm in, this is the direction we're going to go. We know this works in organizations. And if you think we need to do something different, then test it and prove it to me that that is better than what we're doing and we'll adopt it. You know, you asked about the culture and I think it's all about the culture, 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 but the culture David brought into there was this continuous improvement mindset. 
and a disdain for being anything but the best that we could possibly be. He wasn't competing with other people. He was competing with himself and our organization was competing with itself. It's like, oh, you got this score last year. Well, then you better get this score the next year. He was always looking to improve. And he was a very humble leader, but he wasn't afraid to turn over rocks and deal with the slimy stuff that he found underneath. And he was relentless in his support and pursuit of quality. And those two things together, support and the pursuit of being the best, um, really helped to shift that culture in a very short period of time. So I mentioned in C-17, the quality journey, if you want to call it that, took from 92 when we were in the drink to 98 when we won the National Quality Award. In aerospace support, we did that in half the time in three years while tripling our revenues with double-digit margins. So I think <laughs> right. I think leadership. I think leadership, if I had to give it one more answer. I want to talk a little bit about, like, as you sort of think back on everything that happened in, in both of those programs, how would you characterize your key lessons learned, the things that you think maybe applicable to other organizations that came out of this experience? I'm going to go back to 1991. I just came back from maternity leave. I'm a very tired person. I've got twin daughters at home. I'm just, and they said, go learn about this criteria. And I'm like sitting in the room the first day with a bunch of other people. And they were just sitting there for a training class, they thought. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing in this room and why who's Malcolm Baldridge and why should I care about this? And I went from that as a personal transformation in a very short period of time to a zealot because it was like a light bulb went on for me. It's like, wow, having this, anybody who knows me knows I'm a very organized person. So it won't be a surprise that this appealed to me, but having this way to organize things in a way that you could quickly see what was working and what wasn't where you needed to apply some uh, resources to make things better um, and what results you were getting and where you were doing things that you needed to stop doing. One of the biggest problems in the Boeing company at that time was we would start lots of things. They're very innovative. Innovation was one of the you know key qualities, but the problem was they'd start all these things and then it wasn't in- integrated with anything else and it would fall by the wayside. So I can't say enough good things about the Baldrige criteria and what it enabled for us to be able to bring all that stuff together. Wow, here's some really good things we're doing and that ought to be our approach and stop wasting the resources on these other things that aren't serving us, aren't giving us the right um, kind of benefits and results. So that was number one. Another key lesson learned for me that I think other companies could benefit was while an approach you want to follow may be applicable across different types of cultures, the way you insert that approach into those cultures is vastly different because you really need to get a handle on what culture am I dealing with? What are going to be the resistance points? What are going to be the acceptance points? So a personal lesson learned was instead of just telling people, the boss said, we're going to do this, so we're going to do this, you go in and ask questions. You say, okay, what's, you know, how do things get done here? What's working here? 
what's not working here? What would you change if you were in charge? And through having those dialogues and asking those questions, not that it was a nefarious purpose, but you can wiggle your way into the culture much more cleanly than you can if you just come in and say, okay, new sheriff in town, we're doing this. Uh, that does not work at all. And why would it? Because you're a newcomer, this culture is well-established, and it's going to have a lot of antibodies to newcomers trying to change what they're doing. So maybe a third one, because I like the number three for some reason, but maybe a third one is, is back to leadership again. It's the leader can make all the difference in how they come into the organization and present themselves. And where I just said David was stubborn in his leadership, that's when he came up with, I know I'm a benevolent dictator, but whatever term you call it, humbly going into an organization, but being stubborn in what you know is right for that organization and sticking to it. Stick to itiveness, I guess is, that's not really a word, but that's my third lesson learned. It seemed to me that part of the culture that uh, was the part of the turnaround in both organizations was the difference between what had come before in those organizations, which was telling people what to do, and without much respect for their for their intelligence or even their integrity, to uh, to a genuine respect for what they can for what they bring to the table, what they can do, uh, and the fact that if that you believed that or in the, the organization believed and the leadership believed, if you just gave them the tools, they could tell what need, they could tell you what needed to be done and then let them go do it. Uh, and that's more than anything brought the, to me, brought the people along in a quick, in a much quicker way. Absolutely. And the same thing happened in, in uh, airlift and tanker. I have two quick stories, if I might, that will illustrate that one from causes leadership and one from David Spong's leadership um, from cause at C17 program. He uh, would talk to the folks on the floor all the time. He was always down there walking around the line and just having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people as they were doing their work and asking them what they thought. Um, he would even take smoke breaks with them outside and, and get uh, inputs from different people. And through those channels of communication, he was hearing from the folks who were assembling the airplanes, that one of the things that was causing us problems was out of position work. And by that, I mean, as the plane moved down the line, if something wasn't installed properly errors, or they didn't have a part and they're like, okay, we'll just keep going and then we'll come back and get it later. Well, that caused all kinds of problems, both in time that it took to do it. We didn't have time to do it right the first time, but boy, we sure made time to fix it later. And um, so when they had to pull different parts out to put something in that had been left out or to fix something that had been broken, um, that caused all kinds of just a waterfall of problems. And so he asked them, well, what would you do differently if you were in my shoes? What would you do? And they said, wouldn't move the plane until everything was complete in position and 100% quality. And that, was, and that was the workforce that said that. To the boss. So he came into his leadership team meeting, and I'll never forget this. Um, I got the 
honor to be there that day. And I was not sitting in one of the hot seats. So that was even better. But <laughs> he said to all of his leaders, he said, okay, we're going to implement a new process today. The plane will not move until it is 100% complete in position with 100% quality check. It will not move. There was an uproar. People were rolling their eyes. They're looking at each other like this man has lost his marbles. This is not a good way to run this production line. It is going to cause chaos. It is going to really screw us up worse than we already are. And he was just stubborn about it. He said, nope, this is what's going to fix it. The plane will not move. And I'll tell you what, that, that was a defining moment in Causes Leadership because him standing up to his leadership team who were all telling him in no uncertain terms that this was not the way to do it. Um, he said, well, I want to try it this way. And they never went back. They never looked back. They, from that moment on, every time a plane left a position for the new position, it was hundred percent complete in that position with quality and our cycle time improved, our overall schedule improved and our quality improved as a result. That idea came with the workforce. So switching over to David, um, David is a very quiet, unassuming guy. If you've never met him, he's very soft-spoken. And you wouldn't think that he could be as dynamic of a leader as he is if just looking at him or just talking to him for the first time. And people didn't really, because he wasn't a flamboyant leader, people didn't really know him down in the organization. They knew his name, but they didn't really know who he was. And so... David decided to start having meetings with some of the peeps, some of the teams, and he would pick a different team each week or multiple teams to go visit. He would just find out when their meetings were and show up at the meetings. And so he was talking to this one guy one day in, um, I want to say it was in our training division. And he was talking to this guy and they were going back and forth on, well, how would that work? Well, I think we should do it this way. Well, what about this? And this guy did, had no idea who David was. Zero idea that he was talking to the head of this 13,000 person organization. And they were debating back and forth. And, and at the end of it, David goes, okay, yeah, I think that's a good solution. I think that's what we'll do. I'll go back and put that in place. And he goes, dude, you got to get it through management first. You got to <laughs> convince them that it's going to work. David goes, no, I'm pretty sure I don't. <laughs> and the guy looked at him and he looked at his badge and he goes, you're the man. <laughs> so David was such an unassuming leader that he didn't even know he was debating this whole thing with the leader of the organization. <laughs> One of my favorite stories about David. <laughs> that, that's great. <laughs> Talking about David and, and some of the things that we've learned, you know, you learned during your time there about uh, leadership and its role in leading these changes. One thing I want to just explore for a moment with you was uh, David and Kaz both were good listeners from what I'm picking up and really paid attention to what people were saying. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that with the other side of it, the benevolent dictator uh, side of it, uh, of you know making sure that we're going this direction and being firm on it while at the same time being a good retrace? They can, but I don't think they're mutually exclusive. So David would 
he felt his role as a leader, and I believe Cause did too, although I never had the conversation with him about it. But David felt his role as a leader was to set the direction for the organization and to enable his teams to get them there. Um, it didn't have to be his way or the highway. That wasn't what benevolent dictatorship was all about. What it, what it was about was we're going that direction and we're going to achieve these goals. And he would listen to everybody's ideas and then he would have the whole team come to consensus on those ideas. What he wouldn't accept is if several things, if people treated others badly, if he had someone on his leadership team, the actual dictator instead of a benevolent one, he wouldn't stand for that. He would call them in and say, no, this is the culture we're going to have here. We're going to listen to our people. We're going to support the innovation and good quality ideas they come up with, support a continuous improvement mindset, and we're all going to have that same mindset. And in fact, that's maybe illustrated best in a, in a story where when he came to aerospace support, as I said before, it was a young organization, three years old, and a lot of the leaders that were in place were unhappy that David had been chosen for the role because they felt like they brought an outsider in and one of them should have gotten it instead when the previous leader left. And so he didn't, David really didn't know. And he talked to me privately and said, I don't know what I'm going to have to do. Um, some of these leaders may choose to leave. And I said, and how do you feel about that? He said, well, if they choose to leave, then great. We'll replace them with someone who's aligned with the values and the direction we're going. I said, okay, great. And David ended up not having to replace any of those leaders, but he did have a conversation with one of them, which stands out for me, which was the leader said, really what you're trying to do here is going to really screw us up in everything that we're trying to accomplish. And I don't agree with it. And David said, okay, I get that you don't agree with it, but just try it. Just try it and see if it works. And if it doesn't, then let's come back around and have this conversation again. And the guy still was grumbling about not really wanting to do it. And David says, like I said, I'm willing to listen, but you need to go act like you believe in it to your people. You don't have to really believe in it, but go act like you believe in it. And what David told me was, he goes, I think pretty soon as he acts like he believes it, he'll actually start believing it. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. David ended up not having to change out any leaders in his entire three-year tenure there. <laughs> which is which is in itself kind of extraordinary yeah. um, that he was able to do that with the existing team. Yes. Many of which, as you say, didn't even want him to be the guy that led them. Right. Initially. They sure didn't. <laughs> You know, as a as a practitioner in the organization, you know, really being the one that's got the hands on making these changes uh, going on uh, that that led to this extraordinary performance improvements. There must have been moments when you really needed very specific leadership. How did you develop the kind of relationship, you know, with David uh, to be there for you when you needed him to do something that was important and critical to advancing the organization? That's an interesting question because I haven't thought about this in a long time, but when we were at C17 together, 
we developed a very close working relationship and I learned a lot of lessons. I was naive and I bumped into some walls a couple of times and David was very supportive of me, allowing me to pick myself up, dust myself off and keep going and learn lessons from that. But when he asked me to please go to aerospace support and do this again with him, I said, I'd like a day to think about it. And so he granted me that day. And then the next day I came back in his office and I said, okay, I'm really intrigued by the idea, but I have some conditions. And he said, okay. And he said, I already have two daughters. I'm not adopting you. I said, that's not one of the conditions. <laughs> but yeah, I said, one condition is I report directly to you. Don't put me under anybody else in your organization. I said, and I have to be able to get in to see you when nobody else can get in to see you. When you say nobody gets five minutes today, Debbie gets five minutes today. And if I come in and tell you that I need something, I won't ask lightly, but know that I really need it. And he said, done. And he lived up to every single one of those. And we added another one three months in to the us being in aerospace support. We were having a conversation. He was drawing a picture for me of some new process he wanted on a napkin in his office. And he said, everything important in the world can be written on a napkin. And as we were sitting there at his table and he was writing on this napkin for me, um, I said, you know what? I want to add one condition. He goes, kind of like to be doing that. You're three months in. I said, yeah. But when we apply for and win the Baldridge Award three years, I want to be on the stage with you accepting the award from the president. He said, done. And he followed through. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. When, when you sort of uh, think about the leadership role across both organizations and the change, both David Spong and Don Kozlowski, what would you say, you know, were some of the key things that they brought to the table that we maybe haven't already talked about? You know, those two guys were extremely different people, but both extremely good leaders. Um, Cause was a dynamic, no-nonsense leader, and he could go down and talk to anyone in the organization. He had no trouble striking up a conversation with anybody. David was great one-on-one -on -one with somebody, but he wouldn't necessarily go strike up the conversation. He was an engineer's engineer, and he was more comfortable talking about uh, technical stuff initially. But both of them were humble. Both of them were thinkers, and both of them were willing to try new things. And so I think you know, even though they were very different people, they had those leadership attributes in common that made them successful and made people want to follow them. Because that's my measure of good leadership is people will follow you to places they wouldn't otherwise go on their own. And they both had that. And this is sort of the same question to you personally. I mean, you obviously led people during this whole process. Uh, in some cases, you didn't necessarily have the full authority uh, for them to follow you, but they did. 
Uh, how would you describe your leadership style and how you were able to accomplish what you were able to accomplish? You know, I learned from really good leaders that came before me. David was an awesome role model. Cause was an awesome role model. I also learned from some leaders, as you mentioned at the beginning, Steve, that weren't such great role models. And I knew I didn't want to be like those. And maybe I learned as much from those people about what I didn't want to be as a leader. And as I went through time and grew in different roles, I just tried to keep in front of me, I guess, North Star of what I wanted, how I wanted to be led and deal the same way with other people. And I always, always tried to respect everybody's opinion because everybody's entitled to their opinion. And everybody has thoughts on something. Sometimes it comes down to a leader has to be the deciding factor and has to make, make a hard choice. And you're not going to make everybody happy all the time. But as long as you're aligned in your values and you're all working for the same ultimate goal and you respect everybody in the process, that goes a long way towards getting people to follow you because they know they can trust you. They know you're consistent. They know they're going to be heard. They know that they are going to um, get a fair decision from you, even if they don't like the decision as it is. I was very blessed to get the roles that I got throughout my 30 years at McDonnell Douglas and Boeing. I got to lead various teams. I got to work in a bunch of different dynamic areas. I worked in every single part of the Boeing company. I worked in the defense and space side. I worked in the commercial side. I worked at corporate. I worked in the shared services group and got to lead teams in all different kinds of situations in different locations, St. Louis, Seattle, Southern California, Washington, D.C., and in Chicago. And um, the common denominator is people. People make up organizations. And as long as you enjoy interacting with people and treat them with respect. I think that's what it's all about. Debbie, if you were to give advice to an executive that's, you know, got an organization where he or she knows they can make a lot of improvement, um, maybe they're facing a burning platform situation. Uh, maybe they're not. Maybe it's more of an aerospace support situation where they just know the organization can do better. What would be your advice to that executive? Debbie, I, uh, we know that you run a very successful uh, executive uh, coaching uh, practice now and that, you're, and, and that you're an insignificant man doing this. So you probably get a chance to have this, these conversations uh, once in a while. So we're interested in what you would say. <laughs> I do. In fact, I get, to, I get to have this conversation a lot with uh, the executives that I coach. Um, the first thing I would say is start with yourself. Look in the mirror. Are you a leader who supports change? Are you humble? Are you willing to look at what, what is needed for that organization to succeed? Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are you surrounding yourself with people just like you? Or are you surrounding yourself with people who can provide conflicting perspectives to you? Are you looking at the true results you're getting from what the organization is doing or are you listening to people telling you what they think you want to hear so look at yourself first and 
when you think you've got a good handle on that, then look at the team and, and the organization. And I would say you must be resolute in three things to be successful as a leader. You must have a quality and continuous improvement mindset. So objectively assess the organization, identifying the changes it needs. And it's very easy in corporate America to put cost initiatives or schedule initiatives ahead of everything else. But as we saw in Cause's example, the plane not moving, putting quality first makes all the difference. So continuous improvement mindset is number one. Number two, supporting the changes that are needed to happen without giving into the inevitable resistance that you will face because you will face resistance. It will come in many forms and some of them are pretty sneaky forms, but staying resolute to the ultimate goal for the organization and and getting everybody there together safely. And then number three, biggest thing ever, building and continuing to maintain the right culture that supports innovation, change, and continuous improvement. So work on yourself first, have the continuous improvement mindset, support the changes, and build the right culture. Great, great advice. Uh, Debbie, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Is there anything we didn't discuss or or talk about that you'd like to uh, mention before we close it? Um, I did want to do a shameless mention of a plug. David and I wrote a book together to describe all these things that we went through at both uh, airlift and tanker programs and aerospace support. It's available through ASQ Quality Press or on Amazon. And the name of the book is The Making of a World-Class Organization. Beyond that, I wanted to say the reason I decided to become an executive coach and leadership development expert is because. I think if I had to say one word about all the successes that I've seen happen, it would be leadership. There's good leadership and there's horrible leadership. And if I can work with one person at a time and make them better leaders, then I'll really feel like I've been successful. It's a great thought to leave our interview on. Thank you very much, Debbie. We uh, we have read that book, of course, and appreciate it very much. And we'd, we'd like to, with your permission, make it available through our website as well. That would be wonderful. Thanks for that, Bill. <laughs> you bet, because it's that good. Everybody should have a copy of that. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you have any questions or would like to speak with a transformation specialist, please contact us at info at ascensionts.com. Thanks for listening.